as I mentioned earlier, Dixie's here, and um, Dixie's not here. Oh, there she is. Okay. And um, yeah, it was just uh, just a remarkable experience. Do you want to just give us a quick update, Dixie? And I'll I'll probably interject a bit because I, I got in on this story kind of on the on the fly and, and heard some things Thursday that I want to talk about too. That's quite well, amazing. I just. Well, I just wanted to say that thank you so much for your prayers. It's meant so much to Art. And even though we're, we're way up in Vanderhoof, we think about you a lot. And we're not Facebook or LinkedIn people or, you know, much for computers and phones. But we've been really busy up there. And I guess, yeah, I don't, it was Wednesday night. Art had a really rough night. And then... He had an appointment the next day to have his legs looked at because he's had a lot of pain. And so that night, he really had pain in his heart, all down his side. And I said, I kept saying, let me call the doctor. No, no, I'm seeing the doctor in the morning. And so that was fine. I, I just, you know, we went to the doctor and, and we, you know, he was already in real pain that morning and got into the doctors and did a few tests. He said, You've got, you're having a heart attack. Get over to emergency. So a nurse came over with us, and we, we walked in, and they put him on, did some tests, and got a plane right up there and flew him out and down to St. Paul's. So there he, he's there now. And then I drove down and stayed at his sister's, then went in, and he's, he's had several tests already, but they're not, they're not sure what's going on. And... And, and, you know, you've heard the other story about my son-in-law, my adopted daughter, Lynn. Her husband was on the ski hill, had a major heart attack, and, and they revived him. A doctor was skiing down not too far away, revived him, and now he's in there. And he was packed with ice for two days because they thought he'd have brain damage, and he didn't, and we're so thanking God for that. And then now they're there together, and they're the most healthy-looking men on the ward. They're <laughs> and laughing arts, making people laugh. And but he hasn't slept either for three nights, and I'm hoping he slept last night. Anyway, Ron wants Lynn there most of the time, and Art said, "No, you go, go visit and go to church. Make sure you go and say hello to everyone and for me and send my love." And so, thank you for your prayers. I know it's made. It's been so much to us, so much to Art. I know. I, I met Ron for the first time Thursday night. We, we got in uh, Thursday night to see Art yes. and pray for him just after about an hour after he arrived on the plane. And uh, so we were talking and prayed with, with Art. And, and uh, all of a sudden, Ron walks in with his pole. <laughs> and, he's, and, and I guess he's in the very next room. Yeah, he well, was in the very... A couple rooms down. Yeah. yeah like he, he was then, but now they're up on the fifth floor together. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, we, we just had a, his two sons were yes, there. His yeah. sister was there. Yeah. And uh, Art, of course, being Art, and the, the nurses had to come in and shush us all because we were <laughs> having a big party. But the, the remarkable thing about the story is that for Ron, he told us that he was up on, in Blackcomb and uh, he'd worn these ridiculous colored fluorescent green ski pants. Oh, and and the story. reason he wore them is because he, his sons kept losing them. Oh. And so he said they were like the most geeky looking ski pants you could ever imagine. 
And this doctor who was up there is from Seattle and he was feeling guilty about being up there skiing that weekend because his mom was not well oh. in Seattle. And so he's up on the ski and he sees this geek, geeky guy skiing around with the green ski pants. And he goes, my, you know, and, 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 and kind of noted that. And then a few minutes later, he saw those green ski pants in the woods, in the forest. Oh, and so the chances of him actually have seen, being, uh, seeing oh. Ron without those ski pants uh, were, were, were the nil. And so he had the presence of mind to recognize that it was Ron who had had a heart attack, went to him, administered to him care, and they got him to the hospital, and and the rest was, I I think, a miracle. Uh, He was just as alert and Mm -hmm. as a a whip. They were pretty sure he'd have brain damage, but there's nothing there. The boys were so, they were so vocal about the power of the prayers. It it was just uh, really beautiful. Testimony. Yeah. So yeah. here we are in this tension of the already and the not yet, eh? This yes. week in seeing God's hand. Well, yeah, Lord, we just you. do pray for for yeah. the open heart surgery thank that's you. happening for Ron Jesus. tomorrow. We ask God for for supernatural skill yes. on the the physician's hands, Lord, on the medical yes. team, and that uh, Lord, He'll just come out of this stronger than ever. We yes. also pray for Art, Lord, that You will give them. Uh, skill in discerning yes. exactly the best way forward yes. for him. And we pray for resurrection life. We just speak resurrection yes. life. Let your love and mercy yes. surround them, Lord, mm-hmm. all the days Thank of their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So good to see you, Dixie. Well, uh, with all that's going on this week, I got a call last night at 6 o'clock. While we were having uh, fish and chips, Kathleen and Sue and I over at Mr. Pickwick's over there in the southwest side of the city, had a wonderful time out at uh, Steedston Landing yesterday, haven't been there for a long time. Got a call from Alec saying that he was too, too he, he, try, he called me earlier and said he was going to try to make it happen and at, at six o'clock he still was not well. So I said, Alec, rest, just rest. And so um, I, I had planned on taking the teens today, and, and I still plan on taking them on the session I planned on, but one of the things they had requested uh, in a session I had with them a few months ago was to have uh, some teaching on heaven. And uh, I haven't prepared a lot on heaven uh, this week, except that, I, as you know, I'm in my final uh, stretch for my... A comprehensive exam at Regent. And my topic is uh, Christian spirituality, basically looking at it through history, but then finding my own voice for our time on how to make disciples. And, and uh, what's really hit me this past week in my re- reading is that the whole understanding of the hope of heaven has been such an a important element of Christian spirituality through history. And we've lost that today, at least in a, lot, in, in a lot of our circles. And I feel that God is leading the church to recover it. And, and so some of the reading I did this week um, uh, spoke to that. And I'd, I'm going to read a little bit from a classic. It's called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. 
And it's by a Puritan who was just post-Reformation England. He wrote this probably before the King James Bible was, was published. Um, so the language is going to be interesting, to say the least. And in some ways, as I read, it, it's going to be more about the spirit of it washing over you. Um, but I'll explain a little bit about him more in a minute. And, and I'm going to preface it with just a few, few remarks. The psalmist, and this was my reading this morning from Psalm chapter 90, interestingly enough, just right around the time I got the news about dawn. The psalmist penned these words, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There is something about us knowing our limitations and our humanity and our mortality that is very important for our spirituality. It's very important for our discipleship. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of our humanity and we lose sight of what it is to be Christian. Now, heaven, we talked about this only a few weeks ago in our Sermon on the Mount series. Heaven could be, in Scripture, uh, had three definitions. The first was the atmosphere. The second was the stars and the constellations. And then the third definition, what we're talking about today, is the place where God lives. The place where God dwells. Where faith is sight. Where uh, there is no doubt or fear or suffering or pain or sickness or death. It's the place where God is. And we're to pray for that to come on earth. So it does come in an already not yet way as we've already talked about this morning. Is that we see miracles. We see answers to prayer. We see, we've seen incredible miracles this week and answers to prayer. And yet we've seen death, we've seen grief, we've seen loss, right? And we will continue to. And we've suffered. Anybody suffer this week? I've suffered. It suffers just to get up in the morning, right? It's, it's, it's suffering just to be in these bodies, Paul said. And so... Um, Let's, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Can you throw that text up there, Peter, uh, that you just had a minute ago? From We only had two translations to work from, the King James and the New American Standard, and I thought since you're going to be getting a lot of King James in a minute, we'll try to keep it balanced here. Uh, John said this. He's describing the eternal city, which, by the way, in the end, I, I, I think one of the problems I had growing up uh, with all the talk about heaven, there was a lot of talk about heaven in my early years as a child. But the problem I had as I grew into my teen years is that a lot of talk about heaven was somewhere else. Uh, we're going somewhere. And there is truth in that, in that we are all on a journey somewhere. Journey language is very important. We are pilgrims in progress, to use John Bunyan's terms. Of a contemporary, by the way, of Richard Baxter. So this whole journey language is very important. But the, the, the finale is, it's all going to end up here. And John is in the middle of describing a new heaven and a new earth where heaven marries earth. There's going to be a marriage where heaven marries earth in a great wedding. 
And so he's in the middle of describing the city and that's going to be the capital of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And he just says that, he, there, that, that this is the essence of heaven is that we will be face to face with God. Right now, we can't be because we don't have the physical senses and capacities to see God. It's like a blind man who can't see the, the beauty of a garden or a deaf person who can't ex enjoy the beauty of a symphony. They don't have the senses to receive that, but what will happen is we will receive new bodies in the resurrection where we will have the capacity to see God. We will have the capacity to... to uh, encounter mysteries that Paul said are beyond the human tongue to express. He said, I, I went into the third heaven and I saw things that they're, they're, it's just impossible to talk about. It's beyond our comprehension. I saw no temple in it, John said, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And Baxter, you'll, in a minute, you'll hear him talk about there will be no sacraments. There will be no preachers. Woohoo! Some of you are saying. Not me. I think I'll go preach to some stars somewhere. There will be no need for scripture readings and because we will be face to face with the reality that we've been talking about our whole lifetime. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb Arts Temple. Can you move on there? Is it... Are we able to toggle that, Peter, or are you stuck? Okay. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's a good English play on words. You happy with that, Miss English teacher? <laughs> the lamp is the Lamb. I've never seen that before. The lamp is the Lamb. Next verse. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And uh, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I think we're into chapter 22 now, are we, Peter? Can you go to that? Is that... We're, in, we're improvising here, folks. Dean was chastising me for not getting a PowerPoint ready this morning. See, he's talented enough to do that. <laughs> Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I think I'll, I'll stop there, but um, just make reference to one other passage and I think it's in chapter 21 where it says behold the throne of God is with people and uh, there will be no more sorrow or pain or tears for God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes 
So it's been a week of the already at not yet. And as I said earlier, my growing up years, there was a preoccupation with heaven. But it got really whiny. Does that ring a bell, Wade? It was so whiny. It was like, this life sucks, but one day all will be well. And, and, and it was just this um, existence of our spirituality being about the future. And, and it didn't connect with the now. And yet, in Scripture... There's a tension of the already and the not yet, of the future and the present. And they they work together. And I hope that you will capture this as I read from Baxter this morning. But our lives, we need to understand in perspective, are like the preface to a book. When you read a book, you may read the preface. You may read the introduction. But it's only to get into the book. And our lives are but a preface to the book, to the real life. When you think about it, 10 billion years from now. And you will look back on these few years that we had. Those 60-some years that Don... Don is now in eternity and he's looking back from his myth, you know, at those 65... Was he about? 66 years that he lived on this earth. Now that he steps into eternity, there is no more time. And he understands what James said. What is your life? It's like a vapor. I boiled my kettle. This, well, I boiled the water in the kettle this morning. And that vapor came out. Poof. And it was gone. That's our life. Psalm says, the psalmist said, we are like grass. What is humanity? We're like grass. We flourish like a flower in the field. The wind blows and it's gone. It's like a, a flower that you see blossom in your, your, your lawn or garden in the morning and then the evening because of a dry wind. It's already faded. That's our lives. The New Testament perspective, Paul said, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. There's the, the New Testament uh, disciples had this continually... They were continually longing to a point of groaning for their new body. For a body that um, had the capacity to see God. To encounter God face to face. And one of my favorites, Romans chapter 8, Paul said, for children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, we will also share his glory. And here's the crux. Are you ready? For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not... Paul, here's Paul. Did anybody suffer like Paul? Very few. He says, it's nothing. It's nothing compared with the glory that will be revealed. And so Paul lived in this, this sense of being feeling torn. He wanted, to, he wanted to leave his body and be with Christ. He wanted to die. It was not some kind of death wish, although sometimes as you read Ignatius and some of the martyrs, 
it, it, there was such a longing, it almost seemed like a death wish, but it wasn't a suicidal death wish. They left death in God's hands, always, which is important to ethics for our time. But, you know, today we, we have a, a, a really uh, twisted view on suffering because of technology. Very twisted. And when I read from Richard Baxter, you'll pick this up. That was more biblical back then. But we've somehow found ways to, to bypass suffering. And I'm not against that. But it does affect our worldview. It, does it, affect, it affects our values and, and how we see life. And Paul said this, I am torn. I am torn between the two. Between what? Between life and death. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, who is he talking to? Does anybody remember? He's talking to the Philippians. Not the Philippines. The Philippians. Don't get him mixed up. And they were suffering. But where was he writing from? Anybody remember? From jail. Either in Ephesus or Rome. We're not sure where, but one of those prisons. And he said, I'm torn. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But he says to the Philippians, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in my body. So, okay. I'll I'll stay. I'll stay for a little while. Begrudgingly, I'll stay. In Colossians, he wrote, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hid with Christ in God. Peter wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with a new and a living hope to receive an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Where's my book? Where's my book? Richard Baxter wrote... This classic, which, by the way, sounds a lot like the Cistercians. You know, his language is, interestingly, very mystical, medieval. But he was post-Reformation, about 100 years after the Reformation, early 1600s, right around the time that Champlain was discovering the coasts of eastern Canada and New France was being established. Can I tell you a little bit about Baxter's world? It's a lot different than your and my world. Baxter lived in a very difficult time. England was torn by civil war between the parliamentarians and the monarchists. A lot of bloodshed. Back then, by the way, people didn't live very long, usually. Mortality was much higher. And there was a lot more pain. Most people, by the time they reached their 30s, were just used to always being in pain. Living in pain all the time. 
They just lived with it. So in his, in his middle 30s, Richard Boxter got very sick. And he was, there was church division, Catholic, Protestant stuff going out on. And he got so sick that he thought he was going to die. And so he took on this book, decided to write it. And in prefacing the book, he wrote this, Being in my quarters far from home, cast into extreme languishing by the sudden loss of about a gallon of blood, four quarts of blood, after many years of foregoing weakness and having no acquaintances about me, nor any book but my Bible, and living in continual expectation of death, I bent my thoughts on my everlasting rest. And because my memory, through extreme weakness, was imperfect, I took my pen and began to draw up my funeral sermon or some helps for my own meditation of heaven to sweeten both the rest of my life and my death. (laughs) Writes his funeral sermon and comes up with this. That'd be a good exercise for you and me to write our funeral sermon. It's very important. I want to ask you as you go home today, and maybe if we have time to reflect before we go home, if you had six months to live, how would you live? How would you invest? That's where he was. He was probably somewhere between 36 and 38 years old. Baxter's condition was accentuated by application of diverse remedies after the fashion of the time. In other words all these quacky medicines they tried to use. As indicated in a further note in which he states that he came to Sir John Cook's house in a cold and snowy season. And the cold, together with other things coincident, set my nose to bleeding, he said. When I had bled about a quart or two, I opened four veins. But it did no good. I used diverse other remedies for several days to little purpose. And at last I gave myself a purge, which stopped it. Don't ask me what a purge is. I don't even want to know. So this so much weakened me and altered my complexion that my acquaintances who came to visit me scarce knew me. So he was so emaciated that his loved ones didn't even hardly recognize him. And it's a little wonder that he regarded himself as near to death. It was in such physical weakness that he began to write, The Saint's Everlasting Rest. But there were other reasons for his weariness of life. The general background of the time was that of the Civil War. During its most critical years, in 1641, brought by the gracious providence of God to begin his ministry at Kittermaster, Baxter had found that it yielded the greatest fruits of comfort by its success. But the outbreak of war interrupted his labor. So he just got a church nicely going, and war just devastated the church. Owing to the fury of the rabble in the town, in other words, there was a lot of persecution in the town. It was very common in the Wesley days, and who was about 100 years later, to have riots. They would literally be, any time they had a meeting, they were always worried about a riot that would destroy their building. And I've been in a riot, by the way, when I've ministered. I was in India. 
We were attacked by the RSS. So, uh, they destroyed our, our uh, complex, and we, we, we were surrounded by a co- in a car where they tried to overturn our vehicle. And four brown angels came out of nowhere and ushered us out of there. And we found out the next day they were Muslims who had, who had rescued us. Rescued by Muslims. Yeah, it improved improved our prayer life immensely. So owing to the fury of the rabble and on the advice of his friends, he withdrew and went to Gloucester. So back then, if you were a minister of the gospel, you were used to being a fugitive, used to being on the fly. He then returned after a month's absence. Shortly afterwards, threatened by still further violence, he withdrew a second time and did not return for six years. A very wealthy woman... Patron, and this was common back then, the Lady of Huntington actually funded Bible schools and churches. And one of these wealthy women uh, provided a kind of a hospice for him for, to either die or, or recover. So that's a bit of the background. Um, what I'd like to do is read an excerpt of his book. And this is on suffering. And... He calls this everlasting rest that is our destiny as followers of Jesus as a perfect rest that is coming from our suffering. And he breaks down the suffering into different categories. There's the suffering of temptation. He sees that as suffering. The suffering of division in the body of Christ, that's suffering. The suffering of persecution, the suffering of affliction, the suffering of the heavy responsibilities of being a pastor. So let me read some of these. It is a perfect rest from suffering. When the cause is gone, the effect ceases. Our sufferings were but the consequences of our sinning, and here they both shall cease forever. We shall rest from all our perplexing doubts and fears. It shall no more be said that doubts are like the thistle, a bad weed, but growing in good ground. But they shall now be weeded out and trouble the gracious soul no more. No more need of so many sermons and books and marks and signs to resolve the poor doubting soul. The full fruition of love itself hath now resolved his doubts forever. So for him to struggle with doubt was suffering. Have you doubted that this week? Have you incorporated it into the suffering that is part of this life? We shall rest, in speaking of doubts, we shall rest from that sense that God is displeased with us, which was our greatest torment, whether manifested immediately or immediately. In other words, whether someone said something that made us doubt God or something happened to us directly. Numerous complaints will be turned into admiring thankfulness. And all sense of God's displeasure swallowed up in that ocean of infinite love when sense shall convince us that fury dwelleth not in God. And though for a little moment he hide his face, yet with everlasting compassion will he receive and embrace us. We shall rest from all the temptations of Satan. 
whereby He continually disturbs our peace. What a grief is it to a Christian, though He yield not to temptation. I mean, it's hard enough when you fall. But even when you don't fall and you struggle with temptation that is so intense, yet to be still solicited to deny His Lord, that such a thought should be cast into His heart, that He can set about nothing that is good, but Satan is still dissuading Him from it, distracting Him from it, discouraging Him from it. What a torment, as well as a temptation it is, to have such horrid motions made to His soul. Sometimes cruel thoughts about God, sometimes undervaluing thoughts of Christ, sometimes unbelieving thoughts of Scripture, sometimes injurious thoughts of providence, to be tempted sometimes to turn to present things, sometimes to play with the baits of sin. The bait comes and like a fish you nuzzle it. That's his image there. Sometimes to venture on the delights of the flesh. Sometimes to flat atheism itself. Especially when we know the treachery of our own hearts. That they are as tinder and, and gunpowder. Ready to take fire as soon as one of those sparks shall fall upon them. How the poor Christian lives in continual disquietness to feel these motions. But more than that, that his heart should be soil for the seed and the too fruitful mother of such an offspring. And most of all, through fear, lest they will at last prevail and these cursed motions should procure his consent. But here is our comfort as we now stand by our own strength, as we now not stand by our own strength and shall not be charged with any of this. So when the day of our deliverance comes, we shall fully rest from these temptations. Satan is then bound up. The time of tempting is done. Now do we walk among his snares and are in danger of being circumvented with his methods and wiles. But then we are quite above his snares. And out of hearing of his enticing charms, he hath power to tempt us here in the wilderness. But he doesn't enter into the holy city. Here is no more work for Satan now. We shall also rest from all our temptations which we now undergo from the world and the flesh as well as Satan. And that is a number inexpressible and a weight were it not that we are beholden to supporting grace utterly intolerable. Every sense, eye, hearing, taste, touch, smell, is a snare. Every member of our bodies is a snare. Every creature, a snare. Every mercy, a snare. Every duty, a snare to us. We can scarce open our eyes, but we are in danger. If we behold them above us, we're in danger of envy. If them below us, we're in danger of contempt. If we see sumptuous buildings and pleasant habitations, honor and riches, we are in danger of being drawn away with covetous desire. If the rags and beggary of others, we are in danger of self-applauding thoughts and unmercifulness. 
If we see beauty, it is a bait to lust. If deformity, loathing and disdain. We can scarcely hear a word spoken, but contains to us a matter of temptation. How soon do slanderous reports, vain jests, wanton speeches by that passage creep into the heart. How strong and prevalent a temptation is our appetite, and how constant and strong a watch doth it require. Have we comeliness and beauty? What fuel for pride? Are we deformed? What occasion for complaining? Have we strength of reason and gifts of learning? How hard it is not to be puffed up! To seek ourselves, to hunt after applause, to despise our brothers, to mislike the simplicity that is in Christ. Both in the matter and in the manner of Scripture, in doctrine, in discipline, in worship, in the saints, to effect a pompous, specious, fleshly service of God and to exalt reason above faith. Are we unlearned? Shallow hearts and slender parts? How apt then to despise what we have not and to undervalue that which we do not know and to err with confidence because of ignorance. And if conceitedness and pride do but strike in to become a zealous enemy to truth and a leading trouble of the church's peace under pretense of truth and holiness. Are we men of eminency and in place of authority? How strong is our temptation to slight our brothers? to abuse our trust, to seek ourselves, to stand upon honor and privilege, to forget ourselves, our poor brethren, and the public good. How hard to devote our power to His glory from whom we have received it. How prone to make our wills our law and to cut out all the enjoyment of others, both religious and civil, by the cursed rules and model of our own interest and policy. Are we inferiors and subject? How prone to judge at others' preeminence and to take liberty to bring all their actions to the bar of our incompetent judgment and to censure and slander them and murmur at their proceedings. Are we rich and not too much exalted? Are we poor and not too much discontented and make our worldly necessities a pretense for the robbing God of all His service? But forever blessed be omnipotent love, which saves us out of all of these and makes our straits but the advantages of the glory of His saving grace. In heaven, the danger and the trouble is over. There is nothing but will advance our joy. That's just temptation. I haven't talked about physical infirmities or divisions in the church or persecution or the responsibilities of raising children. Did you know he says that's suffering? The conscientious parents that know the preciousness of their children's souls and the constant pain required to their education cry out, oh, the burden! <laughs> he understood. The conscientious minister when he reads his charge and views his pattern, when he's tried a while what it is to study, pray, and preach, to go from house to house, from neighbor to neighbor, to beseech them night and day with tears. All the burden! Well, I'll stop there.
except for one more paragraph. <laughs> and this is the end. He comes to the end of this section. And he says this, Oh, that the gracious soul would believingly study this word. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. Oh, that the gracious soul would believingly study this word. Are you ready for it? Everlasting. Methinks it should revive him in his deepest agony. Must I, Lord, thus live forever? Then I will love forever. Must my joys be immortal? Then shall my thanksgiving not be immortal. Surely, if I shall never lose my glory, I will never cease your praise. If thou wilt perfect and perpetuate me in my glory as I shall be thine and not mine own, so shall my glory be thy glory. And as all did take their spring from thee, so shall all devolve into thee again. And as thy glory was thine ultimate end in my glory, so shall it also be mine. And when thou hast crowned me with that glory which hath no end. And to thee, O King, eternal, immortal, invincible, the only wise God shall be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm cheating. One more paragraph. And thus I have endeavored to show you. This is Richard Baxter, 400 years ago, speaking to you and me today. Listen to him speak. Because he being dead still speaks. Thus I have endeavored to show you a glimpse of the approaching glory. Not just for Don, not just for Karen's mom. For you, for me. The approaching glory. But oh, how short are my expressions of excellency. Reader, if thou be a humble, sincere believer and waitest with longing and laboring for this rest, thou wilt shortly see and feel the truth of all this. In the meantime, let this much kindle thy desires and quicken thine endeavors. Up and be doing. Run, strive, fight, hold on. For thou hast a certain glorious prize before thee. God will not mock thee. Do not mock thyself, nor betray thy soul by delay or dallying. And all is thine. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I wrote on Don's tributes this morning after I read something that Gwen had written to Don. She wrote these words to her husband who had just parted. And it's a quotation from a poem. Thou art gone. The abyss of heaven hath swallowed up thy form. Thou art gone, the abyss of heaven hath swallowed up thy form. And the words that came to my mind that I penned for him on his tribute wall 
were these. After I'd said my love and sympathies to Gwen and the family, I said, congratulations to Don on the deafening homecoming he is receiving right now on a fight well fought, on a race well run, and a faith well kept. When you tell people they have six months left to live, there's two responses. One is what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's party till it's over, because there's nothing after. But in 1 Corinthians 15, there's another response. Paul said that that response is for those who don't believe in the resurrection of the body. But those who do believe in the resurrection, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks when we get to say the H word again. Box is shut. Canadian, eh? Paul's words were 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's 57. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for, your, for you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, my hopes are that I can so live in this tension between the now and the not yet, that if I found out that I had six months left to live, not much would change. I hope I'm there. I don't know if I am. I have done the funeral sermon for myself before. I probably need to update it. It was about 20 years ago. I thought I was going to die 20 years ago. I did. I didn't think I was going to live to see my 31st birthday. I was so ill, so sick. Here I am, 55 years old. It's like every day is gravy. Every day is bonus. Every day is a a bonus day for me. And I think we're supposed to live that way. For every day it's a bonus. So let's pray. If you were to die in six months, how would you live? Ask God that question today, this week, in part of our Lent. Ask God. How would you change? How would you reassure Sort your priorities and your values. The most important investment you can make is in your internal inheritance. So, Father, would you just, uh, I ask that you would awaken in us a fresh revelation of heaven, of the hope that we have. But that you would do it in such a way that it connects every day with what we do what we say, with how we live, that every day may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and every click of my mouse button or my iPhone be pleasing to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's just wait for a sec. Just come, Holy Spirit.
pray that these words will wash over you that you've heard today. Even though some of the language is very archaic and English that existed 400 years ago, I felt the Lord wanted the spirit of these words just to wash over us today. Let them wash over you. Let them give you hope. Let them give you holy fear. You know what holy fear is? It's, it's not the fear that brings torment that John writes about in John. Holy fear is what Bernard of Clairvaux called that fear of losing the presence of God. To so fear that, that you hate sin, that you hate anything you know breaks his heart. Lord, would you give us, revive that holy fear in us today? Would you revive the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom? Why don't we all stand and uh, let me bless you. Uh, if, if the Lord is just kind of doing some work in you and, and uh, we, we strongly value in the vineyard getting prayer uh, and, and uh, to, not, to not just... Uh, I met with a sister this week that uh, two or three weeks ago the Lord just busted her in the middle of a service and she wanted to know what the next step was. And all I could say is, is just let this marinate. Just let this percolate. Just, it's a holy thing that God is doing. And that's what I feel right now. Is don't run out and forget that holy thing that he's doing in you right now. Get some prayer into it. Have somebody pray that you trust that's next to you. Or if you want to come forward and one of the elders, pastors, pray for you. Or prayer team, we'd be happy I know Dixie's always ready to lay hands on anything that moves. I don't know if you're up to that, Dixie, but we'd sure welcome it. You're welcome to pray. Do you have a word, hon? Sometimes when the Holy Spirit is working, he, you know, Gordy names some things, and it just gripped me, and perhaps it's gripping some of you, particularly when he talked about suffering, and he named them sufferings, temptation, doubt, persecution, affliction, responsibility bearing, and he particularly emphasized parenting, and division. And I felt like that just became so large in my mind, and and I can see the Holy Spirit writing these words and pin, pinpointing so f- for me, I, I know I can identify with, just recently, with doubt. And the, the painful doubt and how I often feel like no matter what I do, I don't do enough. And that comes out of my Catholic background, you know. And, and the Lord just wants to reassure and affirm how incredible it's not by works lest I should boast. There's nothing I can do. I receive God's love because of his love towards me. So I just feel like as God has spoken through you, Gordy, these words, that many of us could maybe grab a hold of one thing. Maybe some of you are suffering terribly because of affliction. Could be physical affliction. Could be an emotional affliction. Or you're suffering because of unbelievable temptation. You just feel like dry tinder, ready to burn. 
because you're getting, getting <coughs> so tempted towards something. Mm. And you need somebody today to pray with you. And some of you are just so weary because of responsibility bearing. And just a brother or sister coming around you is going to make a huge, huge difference. So I think sometimes we need to just, you know, at the end he said, which I felt like, wow, up, run towards the glorious prize. So I feel like we're called to get up and run to one another and contend for this rest. And I think those words from Richard Baxter, as he's languishing as a 35-year-old man on his deathbed, those words are the words that Don is calling to you, Wade and Joe, and to me and to us. Up, run, finish your race. Finish your race. So let me bless you. Wherefore I also bow my knees before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of glory. And, and I ask him that he would out of the riches of his storehouse in glory grant that you would be strengthened with all might by his spirit in the inner person. That Christ this week would dwell in you by faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to, with all the saints, the communion of saints in heaven and earth, comprehend the height, the depth, the breadth, the length. And to know the love of Christ. That passes knowledge. That you may be filled with the full measure of the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within you. You, you, you. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Have a great week. Walk in love. We'll see you soon.